At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how Democrats can win in rural America, something they used to do. We'll speak with Jane Clabb. She's a grassroots organizer based in Hastings, Nebraska, and she's chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party. Also, it's time for another episode of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Today, Don Jr. writes a bestseller, just like his father, his mother, and his sister. A family of literati, Amy Willens will report. But first, maybe you heard the news. The New Hampshire primary was Tuesday this week. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. John, it is such a pleasure to be speaking to you from a place where the the yard signs are already beginning to decay. (laughs) We've reached John Nichols in Concord, New Hampshire. It is midday on Wednesday, the day after the New Hampshire primary. Just to remind our listeners of the results, Bernie, all the headlines say it, Bernie won with 26% of the vote. Pete Buttigieg came in second with 24%. Amy Klobuchar was a surprise third with 20%. Elizabeth Warren was far behind with nine. And Joe Biden, who was the front runner just, what, 10 days ago, had a devastating 8%. So, John Nichols, what is your analysis? My analysis is that because Iowa didn't matter, because they, they blew their caucus up, everything starts in New Hampshire. And uh, New Hampshire at least gave us a result. But in, in truth, as you reviewed, it gave us three winners, in a sense, three people who could claim bragging rights going forward. So we don't have a lot more clarity in the race. But that's not to diminish the win that Bernie Sanders posted. And it's an important thing. Bernie Sanders has now gotten the most votes in the Iowa caucuses, and he's got the most votes in the New Hampshire primary, the traditional two starting points for a Democratic presidential race. He now should be treated in a way that he will never be treated by a lot of our media as not just a serious contender, but, you know, one of the two or three people who are in serious contention all the way through to to be the Democratic nominee for president. But it was a close result. There's a lesson coming out of New Hampshire that's a big, big deal. In all of the exit polling and even in some of the pre-primary polling, what we saw is about two-thirds of the people here said that their, their primary decision, their primary uh, you know, focus in making their decision, was who can beat Trump. And I do believe that um, that's something that the Sanders campaign going forward, as a very viable national campaign, really has to take in and, and understand more. They need to take the fact that people agree with them on a lot of issues, and start to say, and that's 
and you're not weird. That's a winning, that's a winning calculus. It can work. Because interestingly enough, the reason Amy Klobuchar, who kind of came almost from nowhere here, did so very, very well, is that she just jettisoned everything else, and all she talked about was electability. And I saw it in, in real time. That electability discussion lifted her up from basically an asterisk, asterisk in the polls to uh, such a strong third place finish that if she had had two more days, she would have beat Pete Buttigieg. Wow. Can she uh, become the moderate candidate? Can she beat Mayor Pete and uh, seize the center? I think she can beat Mayor Pete. The problem, though, is a bigger one for her, and the challenge going forward is, A, does the party really want a moderate? I'm not as sure of that as some people are. New Hampshire often errs toward the moderate candidate over the more liberal candidate. Um, remember, this is the place that chose uh, Paul Songas and... Gary Hart, when he was running against Jesse Jackson and George McGovern and Walter Mondale in 84, and you can go back to the history, this is not a state that necessarily goes to the left-wing choice. This is actually a state that shows Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama in 2008. And so it is not surprising that moderates did well here. That may not hold as you go forward. And from an electability standpoint, from a smart politics standpoint, that's actually a good thing because... The truth of the matter is that, that the American people actually have sent a lot of signals that they're not looking for a moderate. They're looking for somebody that actually proposes a great big structural change, even if Elizabeth Warren didn't happen to do very well here. As you pointed out in your, your morning after piece for The Nation, the preliminary exit polls had some striking results. Uh, about six in ten New Hampshire Democratic primary voters said they support replacing all private health insurance with a single government plan for everyone. That is not the moderate plan. That is the... Yeah, that sounds familiar, though, doesn't it? It does. Have you heard anybody talking about that? It, it does. On the other hand, the moderates, I think we have to talk about Bloomberg if we're talking about the moderates, because there's a lot of moderate excitement right now that this guy can uh, you know, spend the money that it will take to beat Trump. There's nothing moderate about Mike Bloomberg's fortune. <laughs> uh, that guy's got the money. Bloomberg is a highly, largely unexamined contender who is about to be in the thick of it, and he will be examined more. But my fear is that there'll be such a cacophony of revelation, exposés, of really bad stuff about him, as has happened in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Statements about stop and frisk and things like that. Yeah. But I worry, he may actually come through this still under-scrutinized because the race is unsettled and because there is such an absolute desperation on the part of, the, on the part of party leadership and a lot of the elites in the party to prevent Bernie Sanders from being the nominee and even to prevent him from being taken seriously. There is almost an inevitable moment coming where they will turn their attention to Mike Bloomberg. Well, uh, because I don't think at the end of the day, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, at least what I've seen so far, has the ability to sustain a real you know, bid for the nomination that would actually likely prevail. I think there is going, I think it's a very good chance that there's going to be a settling on Mike Bloomberg as the alternative and that's going to be a really ugly, rough race. And, and frankly, a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. So Bernie won 
the first two contests, Iowa mm-hmm. and New Hampshire. For the first time, he's come in first in a national poll of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. The um, Quinnipiac poll this week showed Bernie beats Trump by eight points among likely uh, voters. And mm-hmm. I think that's one reason why we are now beginning to see the, what shall we call it, panicked attacks from the Democratic uh, establishment. Tom Friedman wrote in the New York Times uh, op-ed column on Wednesday, let me just quote what we're going to get from inside the Democratic Party, on which planet in the Milky Way galaxy is an avowed socialist going to defeat Trump? Bernie Sanders wants to take away the private health coverage of 150 million Americans and replace it with a gigantic, untested Medicare for All program, which he'd also extend to illegal immigrants. How is he going to defeat the Trump machine this year? It will cast Sanders as Che Guevara, which won't be hard. Tom Friedman concludes, please, Democrats, don't tell me you need Sanders' big, ill-thought-through revolutionary grand schemes to get inspired and mobilized for this election. You want a revolution? I'll give you a revolution. Four more years of Donald Trump, close quote. And then he says he wants Michael Bloomberg. Of course he does. And you're starting to hear it from a whole lot of people, right? Michael Bloomberg is literally the, you know, he's not the, he's not the embodiment of the establishment. He's the funder of the establishment. He is kind of free floating character, sort of always there where power, where power asserts itself and has been for a very long time in the Republican Party, I might note, and now in the Democratic Party. He like, he's basically a guy looking for a party for, he's, he's the party rental guy, you know, and uh, he's always looking for a party to, that freedom account, come on, really? Medicare for all or a you know, single-payer health care system is untested? Thank uh, you. I, Thank know, you. <laughs> I know Tom Friedman doesn't get out and travel much, but you know, there, there's actually countries around the world that have tried this thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's an absurdity. It's a, it's a comic notion. And also, my mom is, is uh, experiencing the, the horror, the, you know, the, the nightmare of, of uh, Medicare, and she kind of likes it. <laughs> It's, it is what the Democratic Party, it's the elites of the Democratic Party and their allies, have been doing now for 75 years. Franklin Roosevelt actually showed them that you could do great big stuff and win the hearts of the American people. And win election after election after election after election. They just dominate the politics of the country. He proved that. And so now, for the last 75 years since he died, the Democratic Party has been desperately trying to avoid doing it again. Well, just to wrap up here, I, I, wanna, I want to emphasize what the latest national polls found, that Quinnipiac poll, which I just mentioned, shows that mm-hmm. any of the top six Democrats could beat Trump by a lot. Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren uh, right now beat Trump in this highly rated national poll by five points. Amy Klobuchar beats Trump by six. Joe Biden beats him by seven. Bernie beats him by eight. And in this poll, the new guy, Michael Bloomberg, beats him by nine. Beating Trump is not going to be that hard for any of these candidates since he's the most unpopular president in American history. Or am I being too optimistic about this? Maybe just a wee tiny bit, John. Look, Donald Trump likes to have an opponent, and, and he knows he personally is not popular. So once he's got an opponent, he, he just focuses on every negative he can possibly deliver and amplifies it in the most cynical and crude ways. 
so that people come to hate the opponent as much as they hate Trump. And then in that, you know, kind of like festival of, of you know, indecency, yeah. uh, a lot of good people just decide not to vote or, or some of them might even vote for Trump. And the only way you answer that politics is not with a, a billionaire buying his way into the process. And frankly, not with somebody who's singing Can't We All Get Along or Kumbaya or something like that. No, you beat Donald Trump with somebody who raises a flag that has a real message of an alternative vision for the country, and you fight hard for that vision. You, you amplify the alternative rather than imagine that there's some kind of middle there. If you want to beat Donald Trump, pick somebody who's as interesting to listen to and has as, as much to offer to the good as Donald Trump has to offer to the bad. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. Thank you, John. Great to talk to you in Concord, New Hampshire. It's a great pleasure, my friend. How the Democrats can win in rural America again. For that, we turn to Jane Klebb. She's a grassroots organizer, founder of the grassroots group Bold Nebraska, and chair of the Democratic Party in Nebraska. She put together a coalition of ranchers, farmers, Native Americans, and environmentalists that stopped the Keystone XL pipeline. She's also on the board of Our Revolution, the group that came out of Bernie's 2016 campaign. We reached her today in her hometown, Hastings, Nebraska. Jane Klebb, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yes, I'm calling from Hastings, which is uh, the birthplace of Kool-Aid for all those that <laughs> care. And our small our small rural towns always have a claim to fame, and that's ours. Okay. Well, I'm from Minnesota, where the Democratic Party is still officially the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the DFL, we call it. And they still take the farmer part seriously, Although pretty much all of rural Minnesota is Trump country right now, that's true pretty much everywhere in rural America, isn't it? There's a story in the book that I tell that I think really demonstrates why so many farmers and ranchers in particular continue to vote for the Republicans, even though Democrats are actually better on their policies and for their economic interests. And my husband was running for Congress back in 2006. And a Republican had come to his town hall. A buddy, you know, was supposed to go with him, but his buddy never showed up and he stayed for the entire town hall. So he raises his hand and tells Scott, you know, I'm agreeing with you on a lot of things that you're saying. I'm here nodding my head in agreement. And it got me to thinking, well, I'm a Republican. So how could I agree with a Democrat on so many issues? And then I remembered that if there's only one church in your town, guess what religion you become? Mm. And that is really a perfect picture and demonstration of what's wrong with the Democratic Party and rural voters. We aren't present. We don't invest in red state parties, so they have the resources to go out into rural communities. And so where we used to lose uh, rural voters by, you know, it used to be a 40, 60 percent where we would get 40 percent of the rural voters. We're now getting 20 to 30 percent of the rural voters, and there's no way that somebody can win statewide with a gap that big in our rural community. I looked up the Nebraska vote in 2016, Trump 59, Clinton 34, and yet, as you say, rural Nebraska, rural America needs a lot of the same things that urban America does. Decent, affordable health care, higher wages, good schools. We all know this list. 
And these are, as you say, they're all democratic issues. And yet rural America falls for the Republican appeal, which is based largely, as I understand it, on guns, abortion, and being anti-immigrant. We really disagree with Republicans on guns, abortion, and immigration. How is it possible to win votes given that divide? I think, you know, there's a couple things. One, I think there is this stereotype that rural communities are racist and anti-immigrant. And there's no question that there is some of that in our rural communities, just like there is some of that in our urban communities. But I live in a community when I first moved to Hastings, maybe 2% of our school population was Latino and immigrant. And now it's more like 25%. And that is true for rural towns, especially across the Midwest and agricultural communities where a lot of jobs are in the meatpacking or ag industries and our cost of living is low and our communities are safe. So we have now this opportunity to reach out to Latino communities, immigrant communities, and all the new Americans that are in our small towns and start to bridge this divide. And it is absolutely true. My husband's in the cattle business. We need immigrants in order to keep the agricultural industry alive. I think the mistake that the Democrats make is when they go into a small or rural town, they get nervous and terrified to talk about these, what I will call wedge issues that the Republicans use to keep us divided. And they ask a pollster to create a fancy two sentence to help them get out of that corner. And then they try to pivot away from it rather than just confront it and say, we are gonna maybe disagree on where we should be going on gun reform, women's reproductive health and immigration. But I'm standing here today to protect your property rights against imminent domain for private gain or to protect your clean water. That's where the Democrats have to go. They have to stand up and show that they're fighting for rural voters in order to earn their trust so we don't let those cultural issues wedge us anymore. Let's talk about the fight to stop the Keystone XL pipeline. That was planned to bring some of the worst crude oil from Canada across the Midwest all the way to Houston, where it was going to be refined. In 2015, the movement that you organized and helped lead convinced Obama to block it. How did you get involved and how do you explain your success? You know, this is still ongoing now, a decade-long fight that we've been able to hold together this unlikely alliance of farmers, ranchers, tribes, and environmentalists. And I just want to remind people that may not have followed the Keystone XL fight that in the beginning, we were not only going up against the Republican Party and big oil and the Canadian government. We were going up against 50 percent of the Democrats, including President Obama and Secretary Clinton. Uh, there was a lot of support for Keystone XL. There was this belief that it was going to get us off, you know, quote unquote, foreign oil, even though it is foreign oil mm-hmm. in this particular case, tar sands. So what we did is we really linked arms with the environmental community and told each other, listen, we can't win this fight only with climate change arguments, and we can't win this fight only on protecting water treaty rights and property rights of farmers and ranchers, that we've got to use all of our stories in order to get enough political will and backbone, quite frankly, to the Democratic Party and President Obama to stand up to big oil for once. And I truly believe if the environmentalists had followed their traditional playbook of walking the halls of Congress and trying to convince House members and senators to be on their side, that we would have lost that fight and the pipeline would be in the ground. But because we use the faces and stories of people on the front lines who would be directly impacted, 
it really changed it. It changed not only the culture of climate organizing, but it changed how we can connect with rural voters as well as Democrats. And Trump now, of course, is trying to revive the Keystone Pipeline in January. Thanks to Trump's efforts, the company behind it called TransCanada Energy said that it would begin preparing for construction in Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska as soon as possible. Where do we stand on this right now? TransCanada has been saying that they're going to prepare to construct for 10 years. (laughs) So sometimes we chuckle, you know, sometimes we chuckle at this, their latest pontification. But on the other hand, we obviously take all of their threats very seriously because we're about protecting folks' land and water. So we have three federal lawsuits, not only Bold, but a lot of our partners like the NRDC, Sierra Club, and the Indigenous Environmental Network that are challenging the legality of what President Trump is doing. And then we have 70 families here in Nebraska who are right now in court over the use of eminent domain for private gain. So those 70 families have continued to deny TransCanada's offers and are pushing back. You know, we definitely feel TransCanada breathing down our neck. There's no question about it. But they still haven't uh, issued what's called a final investment decision, which is something that should have been done years ago if they were actually serious about building this pipeline. And it is a message to any voter out there that may not already be fired up about trying to get President Trump out of office. You know, for me, this election personally is about protecting all the farmers and ranchers and tribes I personally know whose lives would be devastated and impacted if we don't get Trump out of office. So it's just a reminder for all of us, like sometimes we have to put our personal opinions aside on which candidate is best. And we're really going to have to rally behind getting President Trump out of office. I want to ask you about ethanol. Subsidies for ethanol is supposedly a requirement of politics in Iowa. Ethanol is a biofuel based on corn that is blended with gasoline, and the federal government requires this in different percentages at different times. Ethanol is very controversial in the environmental community. A lot of people say it's not a good way to slow global warming. What do you think about the politics of ethanol? This is where there'd be lots of heated discussions when we were having strategy meetings on Keystone XL and somebody would be like, but Jane, let's talk about ethanol before the meeting gets started. (laughs) Um, A lot. That happens a lot. I strongly support ethanol. Ethanol really is a way for us to take power away from big oil. And I think that that is a frame that we should be viewing ethanol in. And it is true that ethanol uses land and it uses water and it uses energy in order to create that form of gas, but it is definitely better for the environment than traditional oil. And I know that there are some studies, especially in the early 90s, that would disagree with me on that, but there's more current studies that are much more honest and more and fair and balanced towards the ethanol industry. And it is just 100% true that big oil has used ethanol as a wedge between farmers and the environmental community because they know that there's already a bit of mistrust between those two and they just use this wedge to divide us even further. So I think the Democrats shouldn't allow the Republicans in big oil to do that. I think we should stand with family farmers as they are growing fuel and really show that this is one way that we can take power away from big oil. Big picture here. This is a season of anxiety for Democrats. You know, we have to defeat Trump on November 3rd. The Democratic Party is proud of its diversity. But right now there's that big divide between 
progressives and the people usually called moderates. We call them the Wall Street Democrats. But we need everybody to vote to defeat Trump. What's your idea of how we can achieve this? You know, this is one of those cases where we have to remember that in order to fly, we need two wings. So we need both wings of the party. And in Nebraska, my mantra has always been to fellow Democrats as I'm traveling around the state that we need all shades of blue, right? And quite frankly, I think when you have all of those diverse Democrats at the table, it makes our party stronger. It makes our policy stronger. I'm going to think about agriculture in a very different way that somebody is maybe on the you know East Coast. And folks on the East Coast are going to look at gun reform maybe differently than me. And that's good. And we should have those discussions and bring the best of each of us in order to get folks elected. So I am not interested in reliving 2016 primary with our Democratic Party. And I think we've done better. I was on the ground in Iowa for the caucuses. And the caucuses, the process of the caucus was actually very beautiful. And people um, listened to each other. They weren't throwing things at each other this time. Trust me, I've been to plenty of caucuses, okay. especially in 2016 when people were angry. But there's a lot of coming together. And that's what we need to do this time. We need to come together. Jane Klebb, she's the founder of the grassroots group Bold Nebraska, and she's also head of the Nebraska Democratic Party. Her wonderful new book is called Harvest the Vote, How the Democrats Can Win Again in Rural America. Jane, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Now it's time for a Trump family update. This season, Don Jr. published a book called Triggered, which quickly became a number one bestseller. He joins a family of authors. His mother wrote one, his sister wrote a couple, and of course, his father wrote a monster bestseller. Or, to be more accurate, his father is listed as the author of a number one bestseller, Trump, the Art of the Deal. For comment, we turn to our Trump family update reporter, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. A family of writers. It's a wonderful thing. I don't know, like Martin Amos and Kingsley Amos, longtime readers of The Nation will remember Alexander Coburn and his father Claude and his brothers Andrew and Patrick. And now we have Don and Don Jr. I'd like to start by talking about how Don Jr.'s book follows on all these other books by his family members, starting with his mother Ivana and what she wrote in her book about his birth and picking his name. I'm sure you remember that. He's just been born. He's seconds old. And Ivana says to Donald about his firstborn son, that he should be named Donald Jr. And what did Donald Sr. say? What if he's a loser? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And not only did he say this about his firstborn son when the kid is, what, one minute old, but then she puts it in her book so the whole world knows about this. They're great parents. (laughs) Well, she wanted to have given birth to Donald Trump Jr. That was the whole deal there. So what what Donald Sr. said about his son didn't matter to her. She just thought it was a funny anecdote. (laughs) And what is Ivana's book like? 
Ivana's book is kind of wonderful. I mean, it's the whole story of her rise and her coming to America and meeting this guy and their weird world and their kind of poor parenting. But she had these two parents who took care of the kids and Donald Sr. wasn't around very much. He was doing his business and whatever other business he was doing. And it's a story of the end of the marriage also and of of how great the children are. I mean, that's her main thing because that's her big investment. And is this a real book? It's not really a real book, and she has a co-writer, so there are some good jokes. And it's a a fairly charming book if you can stand to read about the Trumps, which has somehow become my area (laughs) of painful expertise. And then there's Don Jr.'s younger sister, Ivanka. She's written a couple of books. The big recent one is Women Who Work, a New York Times bestseller in 2017. I know you read that one for us. What was that like? Well, that's a book that it it tells a lot of home truths about, you know, how to be a strong woman, how to, you know, it's like reading some incredibly antiquated work at the very beginning of feminism, how you can have it all, how you can juggle everything, how to go work for your daddy, um, how much good she's done for women in her roles and preparatory to becoming head of women's economic interests in the White House. So it's all kind of weird considering that she's, you know, uh, an offshore garment industry chieftain or was at the time. And we know how garment industry workers are treated inside the U.S., but outside the U.S. even worse, which is where she was really um, putting together her clothing line. And and this book is sort of a tie-in with what was at the time her brand. Right. Her brand, which I believe was eponymously named Ivanka Trump. But there was a great hue and cry about her brand because she was put in charge of women's affairs in the in the White House, and, um, and she eventually disbanded the brand. And then there's, of course, their father's monster bestseller, the title of which is Trump, the Art of the Deal. The cover says, by Donald Trump with Tony Schwartz. What do we know about the authorship of this book? Well, Tony Schwartz wrote the book, and then Jane Mayer in The New Yorker wrote a profile um, in which Tony Schwartz confessed to having been the writer and also told the great story about how he could just never force Donald Trump to read any of it. So, you know, he wrote it, and then it became Donald Trump's story without Trump really having much input. (laughs) (laughs) And now we have Don Jr.'s book. It's called Triggered, How the Left Thrives on Hate and Wants to Silence Us. Uh, you're chuckling here. This is so great. <laughs> a lot of this is like you feel like you're in a Soviet rethink camp. And they're really telling your story, but you're sitting in the torture seat. And then they're telling you how, they, how you've tortured them. So that's, it's like an inside-out story. Um, it's got lots and lots of jokes in it, all very Trump daddy style of insults about Trump enemies and lots of whining about how badly the Trumps have been treated because now their father is the most powerful man in the world and it's really hard for them. That's a typical Trump story. And at the end, it ends with all of Donald Trump's accomplishments that have been suppressed by the the media. And this entered the bestseller list at number one. Uh, but then there was a scandal about how it got to 
Uh, number one, the New York Times did a page one piece on bulk purchases. What's the story on bulk purchases of Don Jr.'s book, Triggered? There's the uh, Republican National Committee and the Republican National Campaign Committee, which both ordered a tremendous amount, like $200,000 worth uh, by the RNC and then another $100,000 worth by the RNCC of Don's book. Now, you can see they were doing it because they're using it in campaigns and whatever. I'm not even convinced that they did it to make it the number one bestseller, but they did it to make it a bestseller. And and they succeeded. And there's a great picture of... Uh, I pull out the picture yeah, from of, the pr- of page the, one of the New York Times. page one of the New York Times. It's the basement kind of warehouse room of Turning Point, which is a conservative group. And they bought, I don't know what the dollar amount is. The New York Times didn't seem sure about the dollar amount. But it's like 2,000 cases of the book? No, 2,000 copies. 2,000 copies of the book. And it's like a wall of boxes of a Don Trump Jr.'s book under a poster that says capitalism, not cronyism on the wall of this, uh, as if in total um, forgetfulness of the ironies. And uh, these these boxes of books, dozens and dozens of bo- big boxes of books have never been opened. Yeah, they haven't been opened yet anyway. We don't know when they'll be opened. <laughs> Then Don Jr. went on a book tour, like all good authors, and brought his book tour to UCLA, where his book talk was disrupted by militant students shouting him down. It was actually brought to a speedy uh, and early end. These were not the left-wing students he complains about in the book. What do we know about the disruption of Don Jr.'s uh, talk at UCLA? I mean, it's just so funny when you read the book because the book is all about how, you know, the Republicans are being canceled by the liberal tards, et cetera. And instead, this was uh, Nick Fuente's group. He has he's a guy, a young guy who has um, a show called America First on YouTube. Yes, Mm -hmm. it's on YouTube. Um, He's a Christian nationalist and he hates the conservative group that hosted Don Jr., which is the group that had those books in the basement, Turning Point, and it's run by a guy named Charlie Kirk. And uh, Nick Fuentes, the Christian nationalist, feels that Turning Point is not hard enough on immigration. Uh, So they wanted a chance to talk to Don Jr. about how bad Turning Point is. I mean, this is what the right wing has descended into now. And uh, so they shouted and chatted because they wanted a Q&A. And, and Turning Point had intelligently decided we won't have a Q&A because these people are going to disrupt it. So, in fact, it's not the left wing who's shutting down Don Trump Jr. It's the right wing who's shutting down Don Trump Jr. And they did abort the, the talk because uh, it was too chaotic. We haven't talked a whole lot about this book. What kind of book uh, is this? You know, it's sort of a, a diatribe about how under Trump's presidency, the Trumps have been victimized, even though the whole book is about the whining liberals who talk about how they're victimized all the time and women are victimized and homosexuals are victimized and the inner city is victimized. But actually, this is Don Trump Jr. whining about Uh, his victimization and the whole family's victimization, which is embodied in that 
uh, thing that was pulled from the book, not pulled out of the book, but that people talked about from the book, uh, which is when he went to Arlington National Cemetery and, and Don Trump Jr. And he became very, very emotional. Uh, and you may recall this, listeners. Uh, he became very, very emotional because his family has now given so much to this country. And yet they've been penalized and they've lost a really big chunk of business because they had to give up their uh, their national, some of their national holdings and all of their international uh, businesses so that they could not have any appearance of conflict of interest. Of course, that's not true. They are still doing international business, but he still wept at the gravesides of dead American soldiers over how badly the Trumps have been treated because they're president. I mean, amazing stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm shaking my head. And who wrote this book? We don't know because there's no and with. There's nobody who he wrote it with. And so usually if you don't see a with on the cover of a celebrity type or politician's book uh, as, the, as the author's helper or semi-ghostwriter, you go to the acknowledgments. And in there somewhere, there's a person who you can tell wrote the book. No, not in this book. In the back are, I mean, maybe one of these people co-wrote it with him, but in the back are first name only hunting buddies. I'd like to thank... George and Tom and Hank and Chuck, my hunting and fishing partners. You know, it's like that. It's not, no one you could recognizably say, yeah, that that's the writer. There are some people at Achette, the publishing company, but you can't tell if they're writers or not. So you really don't know who wrote it for him. And let me tell you, the guy is a good, or woman, is a good right-wing joke maker. I mean, there are some funny moments where you say, well, you... You can't stand the guy, but that's kind of funny. It's like Pocahontas. It's kind of funny, but it's just basically awful. Mm -hmm. And that's what his jokes are like. I see you have the book out here. What what uh, what else do we need to know about this book? Well, first of all, it is, you know, there's a dedication. This is his first book. So usually your dedication is to your wife, but he's divorced. Uh, so it could be to his girlfriend, Kimberly, uh, but it's not. It is dedicated to the deplorables I will not read you the whole dedication, but it's Hillary's basket of deplorables who have upheld this country while being told that they are worthless, something like that. But anyway, the, there's a mock title for this book going around online, and, and the mock title, instead of triggered, it's called, Daddy, Please Love Me. <laughs> and that's really what the book is about. It's like this whole love letter to Trump Sr., and in the acknowledgments, he he points this out. He says, the first acknowledgement, to my father, President Donald J. Trump, I am so proud of you. You were always there for us. That is roundly proven untrue by his mother's book. You were always there for us, and now you are there for our nation. Just like your amazing parents, you always took care of our family. No, it was his mother's parents. When you decided to run for office, you stepped up the challenge, and your grandchildren and millions of other kids will be better off because of it. You are one of the most incredible people I have ever known. <laughs> I mean, okay. But this was a neglectful father. This was a very angry son. He didn't speak to his father for a long time when he was, of course, in high school, so we know sons can be that way. But it wasn't that happy a relationship. So now he's found a way to make it all better. Amy Willens, our Trump family update reporter. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome.
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.